Wilder Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Now, as we begin our time today, uh, I want to just think for a moment about something that happens every September or October. Over the last number of years, every September and October, a new apple falls off the tree. Now, when I say that, I don't mean a Honeycrisp or a Granny Smith. When I say that, I mean a new iPhone, right? Every September or October, for the last number of years, a new iPhone has been released. But when I think about the iPhones that have been released over the last number of years, they really haven't been all that new. I mean, think about it. Every one of them can do basically the same thing. They can all take pictures. They can all send text messages. They can all surf the internet. And believe it or not, they can all still make a telephone call, right? And so the the iPhone is something that really has not been all that new since the very first one came out. This is something that might lead us to call each iPhone, instead of the iPhone 12, the iPhone 1.12, because it's just an iteration on the old. Now, we still call it the new iPhone, though, when it comes out. And because we're used to using the word new this way, it's possible that we might allow that understanding of new and old to flavor what we see in our Bibles. Now, in our Bible, there are basically two major sections of our Bible. There's the first section, which is about the first two-thirds of it, which have a title over the top of it called what? The Old Testament. And the last third of our Bible has a title over the top of it called what? The New Testament. Now, there are those words, old and new. But in what sense is the New Testament really new? Is it new in kind of an iPhone 12 kind of a way? Is it new kind of in an Old Testament law version 1.2 kind of way? Or is it new in a new kind of way? The reality, friends, that what we see transpire in the New Testament is something indeed that is very new. There is something available to us in the New Testament that was not available to people that lived in the era before the New Testament. You see, the New Testament describes a new covenant, a new agreement between God and man, a new way that we relate to God. There was an Old Testament or an Old Covenant way that revolved around the law. But when Jesus came, he ushered in not Old Testament law version 1.2, but he ushered in a new covenant that gave us a new battery to power our lives by his spirit to follow him in ways that were otherwise impossible. Now, friends, over the next five weeks, we're going to see just how new this new covenant is and what is new in it, and that is the new power that is available to us through the work of the Holy Spirit if we have trusted in Christ. We're going to see that over the next several weeks. Now, some of you might be going, well, we're in chapter 5 and you're talking about Galatians. 
I haven't been here. I, I was back in high school when you started this, and now I'm coming to OU for the fall. Or you might be, I'm, I'm new to Wildwood, or I haven't been here in a number of weeks. So don't worry. In today's message, you'll be caught up to speed as Paul summarizes much of what he said in the first four chapters in the first 12 verses of Galatians chapter 5. And that's where we're going to be today. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. If you've got a Bible, take it out. Turn to Galatians 5. I want to read for us these 12 verses. And then after I read them, I'm going to back up and make two observations that will help us understand more of where we're headed in the weeks ahead as we look at this great chapter of God's Word together. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now, friends, in these 12 verses, we're going to see two things today. What are those things? Well, the first thing that we're going to see is this. There is no one more thing. There's no one more thing. Now, we see this really in the bulk of the verses that I just read, in the first four verses and then also in verses 7 through 12. But what do I mean when I say there is no one more thing? Well, a clue is that I began with an iPhone illustration. This phrase, one more thing, was made famous by Steve Jobs, the former CEO of Apple Computers. When he would have a press conference to announce new products, he would get up and he would talk and he would talk and he would talk. And you would think that the press conference was about over. And then famously at the very end, he would say, oh, one more thing. And then after he said that, there would be something awesome that he would talk about, whether it was a watch or an Apple TV or a new laptop or whatever it might be that there was some hidden blessing so you would stay to the end of the press conference. Now, some of you aren't old enough to remember that. Some of you don't care. So let me give another analogy of one more thing. And that would be in Marvel movies. How many of you have watched Marvel movies? Well, if you watch a Marvel movie, you you stay through the credits, right? Because the movie ends, but you know there's going to be one more thing. There's going to be one more scene where you're going to find this little nugget that will set up the next movie. Now, some of you are going, wait, what? That's true? Hey, if you get Disney Plus, you can go and you can watch the one more scene. But there's often something hidden there. Now, those are positive examples. One more thing, a great new product. One more thing, a hidden scene setting up a new movie. But also, one more thing can also be something more negative. Think timeshare sales. 
You go to a presentation and you, you hear what it will cost you to own a fraction of the ownership in some condo in some exotic location. And you begin to think, can we afford that? And if you decide that you can, you get right to closing and they say, oh, one more thing. You also will owe us half of your income for the rest of your lives in maintenance fees. And suddenly what you thought was a great deal has suddenly been turned on its head. Now, when we think of Christianity, sometimes we think it must be a one more thing kind of a religion, right? Somebody has come to you and said, your salvation is not dependent on your works, it's dependent on Jesus' work. So trust in him for the forgiveness of sins and you can experience an eternity with God in heaven. And you think that is amazing, But the world around you has conditioned you to think, wait a minute, another shoe is going to drop. Surely there is one more thing, whether it be good or bad. And you think it's probably going to be bad because that deal sounds too good to be true. What we see in Galatians chapter 5 is a reminder that Christianity, the gospel, is not a one more thing situation. It's not, it sounds like a good deal and then it ends up being a catch that is awful. But it's actually God's grace from start to finish. Now, we see that by walking through the bulk of these verses. So let me do that just so we can catch the argument that Paul is making in this section. See, in verse 7, makes this statement. He says, You were running well, Galatians, who hindered you from obeying the truth. See, Paul had gone to the Galatian region. We saw this earlier in our study. He had preached the gospel there, and people had believed it. They had begun to follow Jesus. And that was awesome. They they were running well at the beginning of the race. But after they began running so well, someone had come along and had tripped them up. Now, we think of this in terms of the Olympics that we've been watching on TV. Some of the longer distance races, all of those racers combine into just a few lanes on the track after maybe one or two laps into the race, and sometimes that leads to someone being tripped and in fall. They, they began running so well, and then they got tripped up, and then they hit the deck. What Paul is saying is, he says, Galatians, you began so well, but something has happened. Somebody has told you something that you have embraced and it's tripped you up. You're no longer running the race that I called you to run. But you've you've hit the deck and you're no longer growing in your relationship with Christ. Now, what, what else do we see inside of this? Well, Paul lets them know that this thing that has tripped them up, that that message did not come from God. He says, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. Paul wants them to know that that this message that has caused them to hit the deck, spiritually speaking, that has stunted their spiritual growth, that that is not based on a message from God himself. And furthermore, it's not from a message based on anything Paul had told them. Paul says, but but if my brothers still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? He says, "If, if I had been saying what these people are saying, then I wouldn't be their enemy. Paul wants them to know that it was not what he had said, and it's not what God had said that had tripped them up, but it was a message that was being preached by someone else entirely. And this message that was being preached by someone else was proving to be very influential. 
Paul says it's like a little leaven that is leavening the whole lump. In other words, there were just a few teachers who were teaching this, but their message had taken root in that Galatian church, and many people were now embracing this idea of a message contrary to the gospel that Paul had preached. Now, Paul had faith that the Galatians would would not stay in this fallen state, that ultimately they would get up off the mat and they would continue running. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty. Paul says, they're going to get theirs and you're going to resume your race. Paul was confident of that. We saw this again in the Olympics. Do you remember there was a race just this last week where somebody was running, I think an 800, and in, in the preliminary, he got tripped near the end of a lap. He hits the deck, but he didn't stay down. He got up and resumed his race and actually won the heat. It was a remarkable moment on the track. But that idea is something similar to what Paul is saying here. He says, Galatians, you've hit the deck, but I believe you're going to get up and you're going to keep running and you're going to finish this race. Now, given all of that, what was this message that had tripped up the Galatians? Well, ultimately, the message that had tripped up the Galatians was a one more thing message. It was, yeah, Jesus is great, but there's one more thing. Yeah, faith in Christ is awesome, but there's at least one more thing you need to do in order to be saved. Well, what was that one more thing that was being proclaimed? Well, verse 2 lets us know. Paul says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. It has something to do with this issue of circumcision. That is the message that had been tripped up. So there were some who were coming into the Galatian region, and they were saying, hey, Galatians, it's great that you're believing in Jesus, but one more thing, belief in Jesus plus circumcision. Now we know that's what Paul had in mind because when the situation is described in a parallel passage in Acts chapter 15, this is what it says. It says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It's a one more thing kind of a message. It wasn't just circumcision in itself. Paul actually circumcised Timothy. It wasn't just the act of circumcision. It's what people thought they were accomplishing by being circumcised. Paul says it is dangerous for you to have a one more thing concept to your Christianity. To think that it is Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus the Old Testament covenant. Now, the reason why this was challenging, Paul describes beginning in verse 3. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. Paul says, why are you just picking circumcision out? If you're going to pick circumcision out of the Old Testament and say that you must be circumcised plus faith in Jesus in order to be saved, why not pick everything out of the Old Testament? Why just circumcision? Why not circumcision plus Passover plus animal sacrifice? Why not just add all of those things together? If you're going to trust in the law, Paul would say, in order for your salvation, you better keep all of it. Because if you just pluck circumcision out, it's like dismembering the law that God gave. He says, if you are trusting in the law and in your efforts and in your religion to save you and not Jesus, 
then you better be really good at your religion because you can't just pick which parts of it you want to follow. And if you don't follow it, real problems flow. See, if you're trusting in yourself and not in Christ, then you find yourself severed from Christ. You're saying, no, Jesus, not you. It's, it's me. It's my activity. It's my ritual. It's my religion. It's my righteousness. And if we're trusting in those things by saying Jesus plus something that I do, Paul says you find yourself severed from Christ and fallen from grace. Now, scholars have looked at these verses and wondered, is Paul here saying that the Galatians were in danger of losing their salvation? I I don't think that was the case. Not only do we see a different message in the rest of the New Testament, but, but also even in this letter, Paul refers to them as believers, as brethren, throughout this passage. He's confident they're going to get back up and they're going to keep running. But what he's saying is, he says, if you are trusting in a one more thing version of Christianity, if you're trusting in Jesus plus circumcision, then you will find that there is no power in that. There is no growth in that. And if you go and try to proclaim that as a message for others, there will be no transformation and salvation for others in that. Paul saw a real problem with them preaching a one-more-thing version of their faith. Now, because of that, he goes all the way then and makes this dramatic statement in verse 12. He says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now, is he really saying there what we think he's saying? The answer to that is an uncomfortable yes. But why does he say it? Well, he's talking about a part of the anatomy where circumcision takes place. He says if you're so believing that a little cut gives you a little bit of blessing, you might as well make a big cut. It's, It's a jab right at the heart of what they were saying. But But not only that, but when we look at the, the region of Galatia, there were a number of pagan temples in that area. And a part of the pagan temples, they had different priests who, who led worship in those temples, and a part of their worship included the issue of castration. And so Paul is saying, hey, guess what? Circumcision at this point is of no more value than the castration of a pagan priest. It no longer holds spiritual value. It no longer is able to connect you to the covenant of God. But even beyond that, when we think of what happens with castration or emasculation, there is a loss of ability to reproduce. And I think what Paul was saying was, I want this idea that has been spread like leaven in dough. I want it to stop, and I want it to stop Now, may it be emasculated, may it stop, may it not be proclaimed, may it gain no new audience. See, he wants them to know, friends, that their faith in Jesus is enough by itself. This is why he gives us the headline in verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. We, We sang this song earlier in the service, death was arrested, free, free, together we're free. What what do we mean when we we sing that word? What we mean is we're free from the consequence of our sin because Jesus paid the price when he died in our place. 
And what we mean by that is we're freed from the Old Testament law as the method or the arrangement or the covenant by which we connect to God. We're freed from those obligations because Christ obligated them for us so that we might relate to God on the basis of a new covenant in His blood. It is through Jesus that we connect to God. We are free to live that way, not under the yoke of slavery that is found through our oppression under the law. I think it's interesting in Acts chapter 15, verse 10, Peter describes the experience of a Jew in the Old Testament. And he says, why, friends, would we ask Gentiles to take upon themselves a yoke that we were unable ourselves to bear? In other words, the Old Testament law crushed us. It did not give life to us. God needed a new covenant to bring life to us. And that same new covenant is available for others. Why do we export the law and ask others to be crushed by it as well? See, friends, our faith, Paul wanted us to know, is not a one more thing. It's not a Jesus plus. Now, when I say this, you know, our issue is probably not circumcision. You know, some have grown up in an environment where that may have been an issue that you talked about uh, religiously in your home. But most of us, that has not been the case. But yet all of us are, are faced with this issue of people trying to make our faith a one more thing, a Jesus plus one more thing. In other words, we feel like we've been given this great message. Oh, wait, but there's one more thing. It's, it's definitely Jesus, but also your salvation is Jesus plus baptism. It's Jesus plus communion. It's Jesus plus church attendance. You may have come from an environment where that message has been proclaimed to you, and you've heard it from an early age. But if that's the case, Paul would say, friends, That's a message that will trip you up and have you hit the mat. Instead, let us embrace the truth that our salvation is found through Christ and through Christ alone. It's only through faith in Him that we have salvation. Now, when we trust Christ, we we, we profess it publicly in baptism, but baptism doesn't save anyone. And when we trust Christ, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, but The bread and the cup, they don't save us. It is Jesus alone who saves us. And we come to church because we're encouraged and we're edified, but we don't come to church so that we would be saved. We come to church because we are saved. We come to church because we're exploring what it means to be saved. See, friends, it's not Jesus plus one more thing. Not only do we see that related to our religious ritual. But also we, we see that as it relates to certain sins. We think that in order to be saved, we, we believe in Jesus, but we also believe in Jesus, plus we've never done this sin. That's not what this gospel teaches. The gospel teaches that whatever sin we have done, it's possible for that sin to be forgiven in Christ. We just trust in Him. It's not Jesus plus. It's not Jesus plus a political perspective. It's Jesus alone that saves us. Now, friends, when I walk through that, all of us in this room need to think about the implications of that statement. There's a choice that we have to make. Are, Are we going to view our faith as a Jesus alone faith, or are we going to view it as a Jesus plus faith? 
Now, I don't mean that we're not going to do stuff because we're going to do stuff, right? That's the way God has wired us to, to live our lives. But I mean, what are we really trusting in? Are we trusting in our religion plus Jesus or are we trusting in Jesus alone? Friends, Jesus Christ came. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead to set us free from the yoke of slavery that is the law. Are we going to trust in him alone, or are we going to default to a Jesus plus model? It's a question for all of us to make, and I would just say that if you're here today and you have made this decision in your past, maybe just reaffirm in your soul this truth as you're reminded today again of where our hope is found. But if you're here today and you have never placed your faith and trust in Christ, may today be an opportunity right here at 10.30 a.m., 10.29 to be exact, central daylight time. Don't go another minute. Don't go another second trusting your eternity to something more. Trust your eternity to Jesus himself who makes it possible. And right where you sit, you can profess faith in Christ and begin this new relationship with a new power that's available through him. So the first thing that we've seen is this this great, great truth that there is no one more thing. There's a second thing we need to see in these verses. And that second thing is this. It has to do with faith. Now, it's important that we understand that when we talk about this new covenant that is available to us in Christ, this new arrangement, this new opportunity for us to relate to God in Christ, it's important for us to remember that that is a message that we receive by faith. That's a message that we embrace by faith. But what is faith? Well, Paul is going to describe kind of what faith is in an authentic Christian life by looking at something in verses 5 and 6. And what he tells us about faith is this. Faith is waiting, not working, and working while waiting. Faith is waiting, not working, and working while waiting. Now that sounds contradictory, but hopefully when we get done looking at these verses, you'll understand what is meant by that. Well, it begins by talking about the gift of the Spirit. Now, I mentioned earlier that all of chapter 5 of Galatians really talks about the work of the Holy Spirit, this new power that God has given to us. And for the first time in these verses, he mentions it in verse 5, where he says, for through the Spirit. In other words, this Christian life, this new thing that God has given us, is based upon the work of God in us through His Holy Spirit. God has given us His Spirit as a new battery, a new power source to empower us for the life that he has called us to live. Now, this idea of the Spirit coming to reside within us is something that Paul has talked about throughout his writings. Something we see in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13, he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, this is such an important verse that I want you to actually help me break this down so that we can understand what's, what it means. Okay? When is it that someone has the Spirit come and reside within them? It's when you what? When you? 
when you heard the word of truth and believed in him. When you hear this word and you believe in him, at that moment, guess what happens? The Holy Spirit of God comes to reside inside of your life. Now, that is a remarkable statement. It doesn't happen later on. It doesn't happen after you receive some kind of spiritual enlightenment. It doesn't happen after you have a track record of obedience to show that you are worthy of such a gift. It happens at the moment of your belief. When you hear the Word of God and you believe in Him, the Holy Spirit comes to reside within your lives. Well, what that means is from the moment that you trusted Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit moved in and He said, I'm never going to leave. Now, friends, that is something that is not available to anyone in the Old Covenant era of God's dealing with people. The Holy Spirit existed, right? The third member of the Trinity, eternally existing. But the Holy Spirit came occasionally on a few But in the New Covenant, the New Testament era, the era in which you and I now live, if we believe in Jesus, guess what happens? The Holy Spirit comes and resides permanently inside of us from the moment of our belief. That is a remarkable, remarkable statement. And when He shows up, we have great hope because of the power that He brings with Him. Paul would say in Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The power that has moved inside of us is power that was sufficient to raise Jesus from the dead. That is a remarkable power. See, all too often we, we underestimate it. We, we say, I can't walk away from that temptation Yeah, you can, because of who lives in you. Often we say, I can't forgive that person. You don't know what they've done. Yes, you can, because of who lives in you. I can't love that person. They're unlovable. Yes, you can, because of who lives in you. See, The one who lives in you has grave-defying power. And he's moved in to assist us in this life. Not only do we see that power come here, but as Paul continues what he started in Ephesians 1.13, he says this, he says, The Holy Spirit has come who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Spirit has been placed inside of us. And that's a, a kind of a first fruits that what God has placed inside of us, one day he'll come back for, and when he comes back for it, we're coming with it. You see, the Holy Spirit's presence in us is not just strength for today, as the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, says, but it's also a bright hope for tomorrow. See, we have a hope of eternal salvation, not because we do everything right, but because If we have trusted in Christ, we are forgiven. Christ has paid the penalty for our sins, and he has placed his spirit inside of us so that when he comes back for it, we go with it into his presence forever and ever. See, friends, the spirit is a significant thing for us to understand in this Christian life. 
Now, exactly what, what it means for the Spirit in our lives, uh, we will be talking about that over the next four weeks. But if you have trusted in Christ, whether that's something that happened earlier in this service or whether it happened 50 years ago, the Holy Spirit is present with you now and relevant for us to understand who He is and how we live in relationship to God through Him. Now, after talking about the Spirit, Paul continues and he says this, Through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So, he moves from talk of the Spirit to now talk of faith. And faith is belief in God. It's belief in the gospel message. But faith demonstrates itself, according to Paul in this section, by waiting for the hope of righteousness. Waiting and not working. You know, the idea that we might work our way to God, that we might do enough good things that God might save us, Paul says that's not the way it is. Because we have trusted in Christ, because Jesus' work was sufficient, we do not work for our salvation. We simply wait for it at this moment. That's what faith looks like. We don't try to impress God so that he accepts us into eternity, but we know that God is impressed by what Jesus has done on our behalf. And so we wait for the hope that comes through him. Now, this is a great and a blessed truth as you think about thinking of eternity. Even some of you have relatives right now who are sick and they're they are dying, but they know Christ. In that moment, you're able to have a hope for their righteousness that is to come as they will be united to God forever because of what Jesus has done for them. But this hope is available to all of us as well. See, an element of our faith is that we are waiting and not working for the salvation that God has given to us. But what's, what's interesting is after making that statement, he then talks about working. And he talks about that in the second half of this verse. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, this statement is, is really, really important for us to understand. Because when we think that our salvation is something that we wait for now, we might wonder, what do we do while we wait? And it's possible, and there's a version of Christianity out there that says, well, while we wait for our salvation... We just do a bunch of religious rituals, whether it's circumcision or not being circumcised. That's what it's all about now. We just show up. We just go through the religious rituals. We just do the game. But what Paul says is he says right now it's not about the religious rituals. He says this life that we live right now while we're waiting for the hope to be revealed, by faith we work out the gift of the Spirit which will work itself out through love. See, when the Spirit comes to reside within us, we know that the Spirit is present, not because we begin to glow. And we know the Spirit is present, not because we just feel this warm feeling inside of us. But what we see in Scripture is when the Spirit comes to dwell within us, you know what happens? Others are loved through us. And if you think I'm just making that up, Come back the next four weeks. Because throughout chapter 5, the message again and again and again 
is that the Holy Spirit working itself out in our lives today works out in love for others. That's where it goes. That's what happens. This shouldn't surprise us. Jesus made the statement in John 13, 35. He says, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. See, the Spirit comes within us, and as the Spirit works inside of us, others are loved through us in Jesus' name. This is what we'll see in the weeks ahead in Galatians chapter 5. So as we wrap up this message today, I want to just talk a little bit about what it looks like for us to authentically live the Christian life. The first thing that we would think about is placing our faith in Jesus. This is something that many in the room have already done, but if you have never placed your faith in Christ, that today might be the day that you place your faith in Jesus, that you trust Him for the forgiveness of your sins and your hope for eternity. Not Jesus plus one more thing, but Jesus Himself. The second thing is that you would know that the Spirit has come. If you have trusted in Christ, know that you have been given a new power to reside within you and empower you to the life that God has called you to live. But also know this, that right now we have the privilege of waiting for our salvation by faith, not working for it. Our relationship with God is secure if we have trusted in Christ. But while we wait, that we might work out the Spirit inside of us through love for others. And again, specifically what that looks like is something that we will investigate more as we progress through this series. But there is a new power that is available to us. And it's available to us because of what Jesus has done in the giving of the Spirit. Looking forward to seeing our lives transformed, even as Paul's hope and desire was for the Galatians to be transformed by this great truth as well. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for just this chance to be together. Thank you for this truth that you have given to us. We pray that you would help us now as we leave this place, uh, that we might live in dependence upon your Spirit, that we might love in Jesus' name because you have established us with you forever. We thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 